0: Stanford University.
1: And the Stanford Graduate School of Business.
0: As Brett said, my name is Dufia and it's a great honor today to introduce our opening keynote, Mr. Thomas Barry. Mr. Thomas Barry is the president and CEO of Kingdom, sorry, Zephyr Management. <laughs> it's an investment management company that he founded in 1994. Zephyr sponsors 13 specialized investment funds with approximately $2 billion in capital. Its private equity funds invest in Africa and India, and it has um, marketable funds, which invest in stock markets in developing countries. Prior to founding Zephyr, Mr. Barry was president and CEO of Rockefeller & Company. Um, His team has a great reputation of taking semi to highly stressed assets and turning them around into high profitability. Today, Mr. Barry will give us some insight into his excellent, successful strategy in Africa. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Barry.
1: Thank you. I begin by giving my congratulations to Brett and Doofy for organizing this conference. Uh, I know these things are an enormous amount of work, and congratulations to both of you. And I see many old friends here and made some new friends already this morning, so uh, I'm happy to be here. Maybe that's better. And. I approach my subject with all due humility, because uh, a lot of people in this audience know at least as much or more than I do, so I would like to make this a uh, relatively open forum, and as I go along in my prepared remarks, uh, don't hesitate to interrupt, to add, but also more importantly to dispute or contend anything that I say, because for sure there's no right answers here today, and we're going to uh, do our best. So. Uh, I was asked to talk a little bit about private equity investing in Africa. What do we do? Why is Africa attractive? What is the role of the private sector, and what might be the role of the public sector and the private not-for-profit sector? And I have a few comments on each, but please, uh, my remarks will be relatively brief. I welcome some activity. So let's first take a look and pretend we don't know the names of places. Let's pretend Africa is one market. Africa, India, and China all have over a billion people. And uh, I rank the three here by uh, what might be attractive. So the World Bank ease of doing business. And so uh, we have number one, 67th in the world, two and three. Um, i take, well, Let me go back. I've taken some criteria here. Uh, for sure, I'm not an economist. I'm not telling you I know the answer. I'm just saying, here's a few criteria you might think about if you were thinking about diversifying your investments for wherever they are now today, and you wanted to have a billion-person market, and you looked at India, China, and Africa. So you might say, all right, well, there's going to be wars over water around the world, so who has the most freshwater resources per capita? I might also put in there oil and other energy resources. Internet users, cell phone subscribers... Workforce population is very important because we know in the world today there's some demographic time bombs going on, and the ratio of workers to retirees or non-workers is a huge factor in the world today because only in a few countries in the world are there accumulated assets so large that non-workers can live well. In most countries, the workers have to support as simple as having your uh, parents and relatives living in your house. Uh, size of workforce by 2040 and urbanization. Urbanization is important because very few firms, if any, have made uh, sustainable profits out of agriculture. We hope the day will come when that is true, but generally it hasn't been. So urbanization has become an important factor. Does anybody want to hazard any guess on any of these? Okay. So what I've done is I've mixed them up So column number one is what I consider the most attractive. Two, second, and column number three, the least attractive. So, ease of doing business. Um, You can see that uh, of these, China is really, I mean, India is really the worst. Africa is in the middle, and China is um, uh, doing pretty well. In terms of resources, um, India, we know, is very short of water. Uh, China has some, but China is developing a real water problem. Africa's in fabulous shape. Um, Interestingly enough, you wouldn't have probably thought that Africa has a higher internet use than India. Just think about that for a minute. When you think about the perceptions you read in the newspapers or what you hear in your classrooms or whatever, to think Africa has a higher internet use than India. And of course, look at China, uh, how how powerful it is. Cell phone subscribers, all of them actually have quite a bit for a billion people. Africa is booming. Africa is the first continent in the world that had more cell phones than landlines. It's growing rapidly. And the workforce, you can see, is quite uh, is smaller in Africa, and it's going to flip in the next 20 years. In the next 20 years, because Africa has a young population, India has a relatively young population, and China has a uh, time bomb here because of the one-child policy. Af- uh, is uh, going to be in a position by 2030 where they have a very serious problem in which they have more non-workers than they have workers. Africa and India will be in good shape in that regards. And urbanization is interesting that Africa already has more million-person cities than Europe does. Something you wouldn't think if you ask the man on, on the street. And of course, we know all about China. Again, Africa has more million-person cities than India, you think of India as a country. So what's African perception? I would argue that my random survey a minute there would say it's a pretty level playing field. China, India, or Africa are, are, for different reasons, approximately equal in their attractiveness, and yet that's not the case. The perception is that Africa is materially less attractive than India or China. What, why, why is this true? Well, I, I've tried to think in my own mind, what might this be true? And I thought, well, what, what are the things that you read about in the media that might make people concerned about Africa? I read poverty, education issues, women's issues, ethnic violence, corruption, uh, fiscal challenges. In fact, all these are true to an equal amount in China and India. Uh, they both have all kinds of problems in these areas. So I'm not really quite sure. Business stories, it seems that the media likes to write business success stories about India and China, but not about Africa. So uh, I'm not really sure why the perception is, maybe somebody in the audience can help me, in the media that the India and China get free passes on all their negatives, and the uh, media seems to dwell. Um, regional has- regional conflicts. So some people say, well, maybe regional conflicts is the issue in Africa. But, you know, in China and India, there's enormous regional conflicts and ethnic violence going on er- every day. Is this different from the other BRICs? Um, I think Russia is worse than either of these. Uh, Brazil might be uh, considered equally as good as some of these. But I- I'm just uh, w- concerned about this every day. Now, this leads into a, a advertising pitch, the uh, motto of our firm, uh, Zephyr Management, and Kingdom Zephyr is where the reality is better than the perception, where the reality is better than perception. So in our view, Africa is a prime case of where the reality of the opportunity is much better than the perception. And it's possible that in some of the emerging markets, like China and India, that the reality may be less good than the perception. So this is why we are active. So, in my mind, the reality, the number of hostile conflicts have declined substantially. There's been a a number of strengthening um, legislative and activities in legal and regulatory systems in democratic uh, elections that have happened in a number of African countries. I mentioned a number of different um, examples there. In Nigeria, um, in April, they're going to have a presidential election, so... Uh, they're going through several cycles of a democratic election of electing their leader. There's a number in which the policy reforms have accelerated GDP growth. <clears throat> it's interesting that the number of the top growing economies in the world are also in Africa. And the forecast for Africa as a whole is actually quite high in regards to other parts of the world. So in our mind, there's some positive realities going on. These are just a couple things are kind of interesting. The household, uh, the private consumption, is uh, growing faster than any area except for China. Uh, You see here, it's interesting that um, one wouldn't have thought that Africa's private consumption was growing faster than Brazil or India, but it is. Um, Russia kind of confounds me. I'm not quite sure why it's so high, but China, we know. This is a little bit about. where the money is being spent by African consumers. Uh, it's growing rapidly, as you can see, as Africans enter the growing middle class, there's uh, the household spending is the first thing that people spend money on, moving from unbranded to branded goods. But uh, we think this is where the opportunity is. So let's look at the size of Africa's demand. It's the fastest growing population in the world. Um, the population's on its way to doubling in size, so you can see uh, by the end of this table here, which is, is 2030, um, they'll have uh, 20, uh, about 23% of the world's population. Uh, and 40% of the increase in the population between now and then will come in, in Africa. There's plenty of room uh, for these people. There's plenty of natural resources and water for these people. It's just delivering the services and um, having a proper infrastructure to do so. So in our mind, the big opportunity that we'll see coming about is the underserved basic consumer goods. Infrastructure, of course, has to come first. But along with it, the demand will grow for consumer goods as people enter into the middle class. Why should one invest in Africa? In our mind, uh, Africa is loaded with inefficient markets ready for consolidation. This has been a continent that has the lowest intercontinental trade of any continent in the world. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why that is. Uh, Maybe somebody can hazard a guess here. I think it must be related somehow or other to the post-colonial experience. A lot of uh, Africans think about If they make a little bit of money, rather than expanding to the country next door, they want to go buy a a flat in London or something. But I'm not sure why that is. For us, that is the big opportunity. The big opportunity is regional trade and consolidation. And there are a few regional groups starting up now. The most successful has been the East Africa uh, Customs Union. So um, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi have 100 million people. They have no tariffs. Uh, They have signed a memorandum indicating that they would move towards a single currency unit. This would be spectacular if it happened. If you think of a 100 million person uh, market, only uh, Nigeria, inside Nigeria, has that kind of potential uh, in Africa today. There isn't a lot of uh, private equity uh, competition. Um, The most prominent uh, of whom is in the room today, Mr. Gibeon of ECP, who we fear mortally. But uh, other than that, the quantity of uh, competition isn't very large. Uh, this is, if we say, look, our best guess is $2.5 have been raised in the last three or four years. This is for a billion person market. If you think of that, there's been 10 times that amount raised in the US alone, 10 times that amount raised in Western Europe alone at populations, uh, one third of it. <clears throat> Exit has always been a problem for private equity players. Um, Typically, an investor in private equity in Africa looks to a trade buyer, another uh, company that wants to consolidate inside Africa, or multinational who wants to come there. We've seen recent improvement in the stock exchanges, and we're proud that our own company was a sponsor in uh, Morocco in November with the first uh, IPO I think they've had in a couple years, but it was... um, Close to 150 million U.S. of shares were listed of an insurance company in which we were uh, investor, and we were able to uh, sell about 50 million dollars worth on the initial uh, flotation on the stock exchange. So this is really a new event in Africa. I think that uh, also globalization is really having a big impact on Africa. It's not isolated. Uh, some of the cell phone. Advances, I was talking to some people out here in the lobby, are starting in Africa. Uh, consumer deposits, consumer loan paying, text messaging for healthcare. care. There's all kinds of interesting things are being experimented with in Africa that we don't see in this country. And there'll be new models. And uh, I think we'll see, actually, the application of technology advancing quite rapidly in Africa, where we might not uh, see it here. What does our company do? We think there's a lot of ways to do well. We try and choose one, which is to build regional businesses. We want to take advantage of the fact that the low intercontinental trade within Africa and the fact that most economies, uh, there's 55 or 56 countries in Africa, are relatively small. So we want to be able to help companies grow to a size that they have the management, the skills, information, technology, human resources, to be able to be a global player. Uh, we have uh, two investment funds are currently open, and we have several that we, we have finished. We have um, on-the-ground investment officers in Accra, Johannesburg, Lagos, in London, and also um, overhead like me in New York. We try and find businesses that will support the growing middle class, domestic, businesses in Africa that are growing to have multiple countries so that they will be of a size, that they have the skill set and the ability to compete in a global economy. So we listed some of the things we've been in, uh, retail banking, consumer loans, housing developers, insurance companies, cellular telephones, food producers. We'd like to go into things like transportation and logistics, support for infrastructure, retailing. So there's a lot of areas we, we like to go into. And I'll come into in a little while. It's just as important for us to know what we don't know as it is to know what we do know. So I went over what our strategy is. The uh, diversification is important. Let's think about the events just in the last two weeks in Tunisia and Egypt. How many people would have predicted what happened in Tunisia? Uh, now, of course, everybody likes to say after the fact, "Oh, I knew this was going to happen, but i didn 't know anybody who predicted it, and me, for one, I had a investor and shareholder meeting in November in Tunisia, and we went to Tunisia because it was the best example of the growth of middle class in north africa it 's the best example of infrastructure in North Africa, the best example of tourist facilities electricity works, the telephone works, the roads work. Everybody said, well, this is what a great example. And here, look what happened. So uh, our view is that each business in which we invest must be operating in multiple countries. And that certainly helped us because uh, we do have a joint investment with our friend Tom in uh, the Ivory Coast. And the Ivory Coast has uh, really become almost paralyzed in the last six weeks or so. Unfortunately, the business has another It's a tuna fish company, tuna packing company in um, the uh, East Coast in uh, Madagascar as well. Scale is important. Africa is not isolated. A company has to have enough scale that it can deliver a product or service at a price and a quality that is competitive globally. Has to have the scale to attract management. How can we attract Stanford Business School graduates who are demanding on global pay scales if we don't have the quality of business that's able uh, to pay that. We must have research and development. We must have market strategies. And, uh, And each of these, in turn, then plays to improve the exit options. If somebody wants to buy a business or buy control of a business, they want all these characteristics in it. Strong demand. We've talked about that middle class. I've talked about that on-the-ground help. This is not a market of sophisticated financial engineering. For those of you MBAs who are going to work in investment banking or private equity in the Western world, a lot of financial engineering. These are simple financial deals. The value added is helping a business grow, helping them with a business strategy that works, helping them understand how they can compete in difficult environments. How do you compete when electricity goes off every day? How do you compete when the roads have holes in them? How do you compete against imports? How do you compete against corrupt competitors? You have to know those are extremely valuable skills, and a lot of people have those in Africa, and that's who we want to find and recruit, and this is what we need to do to help the businesses in which we invest grow. So portfolio and help and strategy help is important. Governance. The last point on this page is extremely important. That is, we must have transparency. We must have decision-making process that meets best-in-class standards around the world or this company won't be respected and won't succeed. This is uh, page 12, um, repeat of a lot of things we talked about, so I won't go through this too much except for the last, transparency. Transparency is the only way to deal with corruption. Uh, I think if every company in every government publishes the newspaper every day what they did, there wouldn't be any corruption. So we must be able to demand transparency in every transaction we have, every competitive situation we're in. It's the only way to stop it. Incidentally, I must say, as America, America, there's a lot of corruption in America, and the only way to stop corruption in this country is the same way, transparency. Uh, certainly in government contracts, construction, and other areas where we have a deplorable record here. So how do we source deals? We go call on companies that we think have a model that could be able to grow, that supply a product or service to the middle class that might uh, become a regional or a multi, uh, uh, African-wide business. So these are some of the markets we're looking in today. It's interesting before <laughs> this presentation is only a few days old, and I have Egypt in there, so who knows what's go- <laughs> So who knows, who knows what's going to happen to Egypt in the next week or so? I might digress and say I'd, I'd be interested in anybody's view because um, some, you know, social scientists have written that Tunisia is the first uh, Twitter revolution in the world. I'll uh, be interesting to see, if, you know, is that actually a causative action in Tunisia? Facebook, Twitter, and stuff. And I, clearly the Egyptian government thinks so because I saw that uh, yesterday they turned off the internet, cell phones, and all kinds of other stuff. I don't know if it's been successful and I don't know if it'll have any impact. The people I've talked to in Tunisia say, no, this was gonna happen anyway, or so on, but again, these are all easy things to say after the fact. Before the fact, who knows what would've have, would have happened, but I think the whole, this whole question of social media is, is huge in Africa. I'm gonna give you two case studies, and then we'll have some conclusions. Uh, one is a company that's in a consumer loan business, and one's a company in providing products and services to infrastructure development. Uh, in terms of uh, consumer lending, uh, this is a company that was uh, founded in Botswana was in one country and had a model to provide effective low cost consumer loans. Um, Africa is a country a continent about eighty some percent of people don 't have bank accounts they don 't have access to finance you can 't have middle class if you don 't have finance so This is a company that developed a very interesting model. They went to employers, primarily government employers, and said, we will come here once a week to your canteen and make loans available, repaid through payroll deduction, and we'll start with small amounts, and they can grow in the amount of money and the amount of time in which they pay it back. Now, I said when I first heard, this sounds interesting. This is a really interesting model, but. Wait a minute! If eighty some percent of the people don't have bank accounts, how can you do this? Well, it turns out I didn't realize that even government employees in Botswana, most of them don't have bank accounts. They actually get paid by check because they can't get electronic transfer. They don't have a bank account. They just turn the check over and sign it and get cash. So they <laughs> they live in a cash economy. But uh, we could. Uh, this guy was able to offer them uh, loans uh, at a very competitive rate. Because the collection cost is zero, the, why is the collection cost zero? Because the employer is delighted to operate the electronic funds transfer, collect the money. Why? Because in Africa, employers are called upon to lend money to employees. It's still a very paternalistic system. The employee can go to the employer and say, "You know, my grandmother died. I need some money for the burial. I have to go to my hometown. Blah 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 blah. Give me some money." Very difficult to collect that money. Awkward situation between employer and employee. This way they can say, no, we don't do this anymore, La has a contract with us. They come here every Wednesday the canteen. You can borrow money from them and pay through payroll deduction. And incidentally, I'm happy you're doing it because it's uh, approximately one-fifth the cost of what you pay when you go borrow on the sidewalk. So they have uh, about 90% of the loan business in Africa is informal money lenders. Um, India, recently you may have read there's been a lot of um, noise in the state of Andhra Pradesh uh, about uh, consumer loans and micro-lending and all that. Uh, this is this is a smoke screen because uh, 60 or 70 percent of the loans in that state are informal money lenders, and they're paying off the politicians and others because the formal sector is making real inroads. You know how it works in this country. You want to borrow from the mafia. They have good marketing which is six for five. Say, so Doofy, you need some money? Uh, I'll give you five. You give me six on payday. It's a fabulous consumer marketing pledge because payday is next week. So it's about a 1,000% interest, uh, six for five for a week. And, uh, but the politicians come out and say, well, if you charge 30% interest, you're a bad guy or something. Uh, when we invested in this company, we said you ought to be regional. You ought to diversify your risk. So they've gone from one to seven countries. They've gone from approximately 40, equivalent of 45 million U.S. in loans to 269 uh, million. Um, The uh, third bullet point has a typo. 37% of their top line, their revenue comes from outside Botswana. About 90% of the growth comes from outside Botswana. Botswana is their original country. Now they're growing like crazy outside. The average loans, uh, the equivalent of U.S., uh, $1,750, you can start as little as 100 hundred, two hundred $200. We did a survey. Is this social good? The answer is yes. Uh, 80% of the money is used for either hard goods or school fees. So let's examine those. Hard goods would be a television refrigerator or some other good you want for your home. This is a cheap way to buy it. Uh, when I was a kid, I'm old enough. You guys are too young, but in America, when I was a kid, you went to the store that sold, Furniture, refrigerators, televisions, or whatever, and they finance it for you. So you buy and you pay so much a week to them, and they made many, many more times on the financing than they did on the hard good because you didn't realize yourself. Because they might, might be a refrigerator that costs $1,000. You might end up paying $2,000 for it over two years uh, in your weekly or monthly payments. So it is in other countries, and cheaper to borrow the money in cash and buy the hard good. School fees... You know, unlike this country where uh, I think virtually every primary school district is without charge beyond your taxes. In Africa, you have to pay school fees. Sometimes you have to bribe the teacher or whatever. So uh, the um, parents use this well. So we're happy that we're able to lend this and we have, um, I think, over 100,000 borrowers right now in seven countries. So this is uh, what I'll give in a minute to our theme of by doing well, we're also doing good. We're bringing um, a reasonably priced financing and help a middle class grow. Um, i say 80% of the, the people don't have bank accounts. Uh, we're trying to uh, assist the people in geographic expansion. We're also uh, very conscious of our employee programs. We were one of the first in uh, Botswana and the first in several countries they went to that has a full uh, health and HIV program, which most companies, Uh, don't have. More than half of our employees are women and uh, professional employees, and we're happy to that. And anyway, in the end, you can't have a middle class if you don't have credit. Second company is Consolidated Infrastructure. This is actually a South African company, but it does very little of its business in South Africa. It's in, um, I think, 14 other countries in Africa. It has some legacy businesses that uh, are uh, sand and brick clay where they sold into the construction businesses. But their main business is uh, Conco, which does electric power substations. This is a high value added but small piece of electric power business. We know Africa is desperately short of electricity and energy. And one of the key parts coming from a a power generation unit is a substation. We have um, also expanded into alternative energy, and you can see a picture here of uh, alternative energy, which is a wind farm in South Africa. So uh, here's a picture of the world. Uh, This is shocking at night. Look at Africa. The only other really dark place is uh, the Amazon Basin in Brazil. And this gives you an indication of how serious the problem is in Africa. There is no middle class. There's no economic growth if there isn't uh, electric power generation. So we're trying to uh, be a proponent of building small, large, any size uh, power generating facilities to be able to help the population help themselves. As you can see here, 45% of the population in Africa has access to electricity. So this is shockingly low. It's got to be a great business for us. And by doing well, we hope we'll do good. Here's a picture of what they do in terms of the power stations on the left side and the overhead lines on the right side. Uh, these again are high value added parts. Could you go back to the previous slide? How do you explain there not being lights in, in Canada or Australia? So in Canada, northern Canada is almost unoccupied. So I think the lights, if you look at it, are southern Canada, where it's uh, populated. But if you go to northern Canada, not much like Alaska. You look at Alaska, there's just a uh, few places. Most of South America is concentrated on the coast because of the Amazon. Uh, If you look at north of India, you can see southern, uh, western China, not doing well, Australia, you can see is populated on the coast, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, and so on, and Perth, nothing in the middle, Um, but I don't know, you know, maybe Canada's not doing very well, or something, (laughs) maybe they're not paying their bill. I I think actually Canada has a surplus through hydroelectric, yes sir? Does this take into consideration time zone difference? Yeah, that's a good question. i don 't know are you guys trying to wreck my point here <laughs> I thought I had a good point, but I mean yeah. so uh, wind farms this company is doing wind farm in in uh, South Africa. Now, you know, wind farms are difficult because in most cases they 're not economical, but South Africa has a policy like this country that forces the uh, transmission companies to buy your wind power at whatever price. Um, to, to try to promote alternative energy. So just to c- conclude this part, we think there's significant opportunities to invest in Africa. We think the media makes the perception less good than the reality. There are substantial unmet needs as uh, middle class develops in Africa. Uh, we think that there's a strong demand that we should try to Help And by helping the demand be addressed, this will help investments do well. We think there has to be regional businesses because economies are too small in most countries to reach scale to be global competitors. We need to actively help each business because it isn't just money that they uh, need. There's going to be a lot of infrastructure going on in Africa. We're not sure that we can profitably participate in infrastructure projects by themselves but products or services sell into them. And anything that's financial services or middle class consumer is something we'd like to do. We have to know what we can do. We have to know what we don't know. Here's a list what we don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know. But in Africa, for sure, we don't know natural resources. We don't know public-private enterprises. That's a different kind of skill set. We don't engage in financially leveraged transactions. We don't do startups. We don't do information technology or real technology. These are all things we don't. The list could go on for long about all the things we don't know how to do. We want to focus on what we do know how to do, regional expansions to support sustainable economic activity, going after the new middle class and empower them, help on the ground with hands-on, help and have a staff. Uh, We're in five cities now. We'd like to open two more. Be a minority owner, support majority African ownership, so they have an African ownership class. And feel that we're going to do good by doing well. We, oh, I'm sorry, just a quick question about what your criteria are for um, investing in companies. I guess you, you, when you say you don't know startups, I'm that means you don't invest in... Right. So what um, what, what So we find businesses that are medium-sized uh, by African standards that have a proven business model, but need management and financial help to scale up. Mm -hmm. Okay? Barry. Uh, Tom, your last point about being a minority investor uh, raises the question, uh, how do you find good partners? I mean, whether you're investing in the United States or any place, the key is you've got to have good partners, not intermediaries, not middle people, but somebody Yeah, that's a great question, how we find good partners. So following on from the prior question, we hope we can observe somebody who has a successful business model. So this company I just went through in Botswana, these guys, we were studying consumer loan business, and we said, well, the banks aren't doing a very good job. Insurance companies aren't doing a very good job. Who is And so he said, this guy's doing a fabulous job up in Botswana. Went and visited him and said, have you ever thought about really expanding? An interesting story, the guy said, no, uh, I've made some money. Uh, I want to take my money, and that's about it. So he said, well, we'll buy you out, uh, but we want to support the Botswana management. We said, have you guys ever thought about going to other countries? And he said, well, yeah, we'd like to, but we don't have the money and the skill set and so on. So we we thought they were good people, and this turned out uh, very well. Knowing... Um, the competency and the ethics of management is number one. And we make mistakes all the time. So we have to try to have uh, some practical um, safeguards. They're, they don't always work, but we try to have practical safeguards against either incompetency or, or wrongdoing. The reason we have so many, all our investment people in Africa is the character of the people's number one. Legal contracts can't protect you. Uh, going to court's a waste of time in Africa. Uh, so uh, you, you have to know the character of the people. So we spend most of our time studying the people, their background, and what reference checks we can do on them to decide whether these are the kind of people we'd like to be associated with. We also hope they've learned some lessons getting from being startup, which we don't know how to do, to where they have a sustainable model. And the scale-up is a different skill set, how you scale up. You know, if you have five branch banks, how do you have 50 branch banks? Different skill set. But those are ones that we think we can help with. Uh, start-up, I think, is a little more difficult. But uh, Barry's asked the questions the most difficult of all. The last part of this page is, <clears throat> How to have a positive impact. We want to create permanent jobs. When we leave, the job goes on. We want to be a financial investor for five years, plus or minus, and when we leave, we want to be proud to say those jobs are going to go on and on and on and on. We want to develop management skill in Africa. Not expatriates, but people who are committed to staying there because that's what makes permanent jobs. Ownership class. We want to show that the private sector can develop Wealth can create new uh, empowerment among the people. It's an alternative to the advocates of government action or government interests, or in effect, socialist or state economies. We need talk is cheap. We need strong examples that there's another way to go. Women are the most underutilized asset in Africa. We want to promote uh, women and use their skills because they're energetic and uh, in many cases better educated uh, than men. And we know that health and well-being is a good investment. And we're happy and proud to do it because that's just good business. Right. Well, Doofy, uh, I come from the middle part of this country, from Ohio, and uh, in Ohio, nobody liked politicians or the government. So I, I'm a prisoner of my background. I don't like my own government. I don't like I'd be involved with them in any way. And in Africa, I avoid all governments. Uh, now that doesn't mean you can't avoid them. You have to be involved. But if you notice the businesses, we try to pick businesses that are not very glamorous. Glamorous, of course, is a, a, a attitude uh, of the mind, but like sell your telephones, which is a fabulous business, isn't very glamorous. Somehow other politicians and army generals just don't want to come seize your business when you're in, in, in that business. You know, they like, they like if you're in gold or you have diamonds or you have something that looks flashy, you know, they want to get in your business. Um, we have a, a lot of difficulty country to country. So we uh, countries are quite bad at treaties with each other. So we have to I have a domicile in Mauritius, and from Mauritius, then invest in each country, so it all goes back up to holding company because there's no country in Africa that you can actually operate out of that you don't get harassed or double taxed in in some way. We try to uh, not have do uh, be in companies that have contracts with governments or or do business with them, but I do the same thing in this country. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, but you have right. Uh, are you, why are you guys in Ivory Coast, in Nigeria, or not in Ghana? Or are you investing in Ghana? Or- yeah, so uh, Ghana is a relatively small economy. You know, it's, was it, 12 million people? It's, about 20, 20, you know, it's, it's close to Ivory Coast population size. Yeah, and uh, uh, a highly agricultural society uh we we uh, would be happy to invest in Ghana as part of a multi country thing we did We did have a big investment in ecobank, which has a big bank in Ghana uh and I mean they technically are headquartered i think in togo or something aren't they which is not an important economy but uh, uh, but Ghana is an important place for us because it's uh personal safety is good. The uh, logistics are good, and it's a nice place to, uh, to live for West Africa. So we, we are interested in Ghana as part of a multi-country package, as we are in the other countries. Yeah, we we would love it. Uh, we, we've seen people who've tried to start um, credit rating agencies, for example. Uh, I, I, uh, s- we encourage one guy in Nigeria who's trying to start uh, consumer records, but it's very, very difficult. Uh, and, and that's impeding the growth of credit cards, incidentally, and in consumer credit and stuff. So if you knew somebody who, we won't do a startup, but if somebody had a model that was working and sustainable, we'd love it, because that would expand it. Yeah? But actually, thought your lending business, I thought that would be Yeah, but you see, uh, we, we start with the government entities, and um, governments are hopeless. They never lay off people. So uh, th- this, this is the best credit you can get. Uh, <laughs> You know, we do it. So we go to the army, the police, the fire, all these people and government workers, and it's just great because uh, even if they don't work, they always get paid every month, and uh, uh, we we can deduct it. So it's it's a great business. We we go very cautiously into uh, private sector employers that we make these loans, but we we do that if they have uh, longevity, if the employee has some longevity with the employer, we can get a deposit. One more. Right. Yeah, we don't... We don't. I, I mentioned the, the Moroccan IPO earlier because it's the exception. Uh, we, uh, you know, th- this is a good example. A regional stock exchange or regional capital markets would be one of the biggest money-making ideas I've ever heard of in Africa. This provincial attitude that, you know, we just want to have our own little stock exchange and we don't let anybody in because they might get in on our stealing money from our clients or disadvantage them in some way, is just really stupid. The government should break it up. The government should have a regional stock exchange. They have regional currency because that would enormously help the financing of businesses. Like, there's almost no private debt market. You know, one company issued debt in Nigeria a few weeks ago, as flour mills, is one of the very few times people have done that. You know, just sort of government debt crowds it out. I think a fabulous business is regional capital markets. What happens is, sadly because of this provincial attitude when companies get big enough they leave all together and they list in London this is crazy africa loses the the business and and the listing fee sir yeah, i want to ask you about startups you Please. mentioned that you don't know a lot about them but i like to hear your view because fundamentally i agree with your thesis that africa has a very prosperous future but if, if in order for that to be true uh, it has to be under i would i would say at least in part on a foundation of entrepreneurship right Great. Yeah, so how do you, uh, what's your view about the future of the sort of conditions for startups in Africa? And perhaps as a follow on, what do you think could be done to influence or kickstart a culture of entrepreneurship there? Well, I think there there is quite a culture of entrepreneurial. I mean, that is most of Africa, most people in Africa work in the informal economy. The vast majority of employees, so they 're doing something that 's let 's say by definition entrepreneurial uh, they're small businesses. Uh, I think there 's been no history of financing, so if I were the head of one of these countries, I would try to have enacting legislation for venture capital funds, maybe make it tax advantage to have a venture capital investment fund to have local skill sets you know in this country, we have the Small business Association or you know small business loans, SBIC and others. Um, I think there's a lot of ways you can try to promote the formalization and financing of small businesses. You have to have contracts that work. So you'd have to, you know, court system doesn't work. I go to a mandatory arbitration, set up independent arbitration for businesses. You know, Because if you're in a small business, you get in a dispute. There's no way to resolve a dispute. In this country, you can go to court or small claims court and get something done. It's hopeless uh, in, in Africa. Uh, I, I, I think anything that formal, you know, most African banks... Lend on assets, not on income. They're asset lenders. So if you're a small business guy, you don't have any assets, so you're stuck. You know, get uh, maybe <clears throat> it's our government development bank that would make uh, income loans or character loans or something. Uh, sir, in the back. I have a similar question as it pertains to the public private enterprises and your version there, especially um, in view of the regionalization initiative. Right. Right. And, and on the regional level with several governments, a lot of the risk of, of, uh, and things like that seem to be so you if, Well, you, you need a special skill set to be in partnership with the government. We don't have that. Uh, governments, you know, uh, change. And when the government changes, the new guy in charge many times uh, doesn't particularly favor upholding the contracts of the prior government. One of the things about infrastructure is that infrastructure rests upon very long-term pricing contracts. If you build electricity or do roads or whatever, and we're always nervous that they might change the pricing once we make our investment. So you need, uh, you know, there are companies here in this area, Bechtel gets involved in some of them. There's some pretty smart people who understand how to do that. Uh, So I'm not against it. I'm just saying we don't have those skills. Yes, if if they will behave, you know, if they will have regional courts, for example, if they have regional uh, dispute resolutions, yes. And I said the most promising one is the East African one. The countries I mentioned before, they have a hundred million people: uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. Who did I forget? Burundi, Rwanda, and um, it's starting to work pretty well. They don't have um, dispute resolution, but you know, if they had a common currency or had a common a stock market or capital markets, this could really be a model for the rest of Africa. And the rest has just been talk, just hot air, what goes on in North Africa and West Africa and uh, Southern Africa development. One more, then I'm going to finish. Can you talk more about the human capital? Yeah. Yeah. But we can. You see, we won't go into business, so we won't. I don't believe in it. You didn't come spend $200,000 to go to Stanford Business School to take a subpar salary. You have to pay people properly anywhere in the world. I don't care where you are in the world. You have to pay them or, the, or you won't get the best people. But you have to build a business model that can pay that. You know, uh, Otherwise, you, you, you work back the other way. You know, Everybody talks about natural resources in Africa, but in fact, the most precious Export of Africa has been its people, the valuable people that you meet in London, in New York. It's breathtaking. So, I read somewhere like a third of the doctors in Houston are Nigerian. You know, anybody here from you? So I know you're from Nigeria. You know that? What? Somebody told me there's more practicing surgeon Nigerian surgeons in Houston than they're in Lagos. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah. Okay. So why? What we need is people like FOA who make it attractive for a surgeon to go back to his or her own country and practice. In many countries, it's not in Kenya. I was there in Kenya. 100% of the people who graduated from medical school from Kenya this year left the country. Prime Minister had this cockamamie idea that Great Britain had to pay reparations because medical people went to Great Britain. What a silly idea. He should look in the mirror. And say, why is not attractive for them to stay here? It isn't the English's fault that these people went to England. They're just getting a return on investment of their medical education. Let me just finish, and then we can have some more questions. I was asked, what about the roles? Government. So this is just one guy. I'm one guy, okay? There's lots of room for argument here. Level the playing field and create transparency. If government did nothing more than put every contract and every piece of money that changed hands in the paper every day, it would change the face of Africa. Regulate competition. A fair playing field, have a regulatory commission that is not prejudiced. Physical infrastructure. There hasn't been much progress in most parts of the world of public-private partnerships, some in power, but the government's got to make roads and bridges and airports and make these things happen. You can privatize airports, but you've got to have the enabling... Legislature and the money to do so, and the ease of doing business. We do a lot of business development finance institutions, so I was asked about them. All the European governments have very good development finance institutions. Sadly, the U.S. government does not have one. I wish they did. Although, headquartered in this country is the World Bank, and their subsidiary, the International Finance Corporation, IFC, which is the largest DFI. These people what's their job, in my opinion? Provide risk based capital to stimulate the private sector. Take risk or take the first part of the risk to stimulate risk capital coming in. They also have the clout to influence governments that I don't have and other investors don't have to try to get a level playing field and validate the progress. And I was asked today about not-for-profits. I believe not-for-profits and NGOs have an important part. Provide seat capital and skill to some startup enterprises that are risk, too risky or viewed as too risky for people in the private sector to do. Be a bridge. Let me emphasize that word, a bridge. A bridge to sustainable enterprise. The worst thing that foreign aid or NGOs can do is develop a, a model in which they have to stay there forever. It's a dependency. It doesn't work. There's mutual resentment, but help a startup that has a model that says in three years or five years we'll get to the point that it runs itself. I describe these as the battery in your car. The battery is supposed to start the engine. Once the engine starts, it's supposed to be self-sustaining. It runs itself in terms of jobs and revenues and created. I think uh, a lot of not-for-profits and social enterprises should view themselves as the battery. How do we start up something standing still or doesn't exist and get it into a sustainable state? So what's my role and what's your role? My role is to try to have a positive impact on economic development, job creation, skills development, local wealth creation, and stemming or reversing the brain drain. I consider that my job. To do that, I have to do well. I have to earn a return on capital that the people I get the capital from think is risk-adjusted return. If I can't earn that, I don't get the capital, I'm out of business. So I'm like the engine. I'm out of gas if I don't be able to prove the return. We can't have positive economic impact or do well if the businesses we invest in don't meet a market test. If they cannot sustain themselves, they're dead. I'm dead. It's over. Help entrepreneurs and medium-sized businesses strengthen their corporate governance and build scale from being an entrepreneur to being a full-fledged business. And make regional relationships. This is not the natural instinct of most Africans for reasons I said earlier. So what's your role? You and I can't impact the government. So let's go back to one of the questions before. We, we have no role. We have no influence over government. You can embrace and benefit from globalization. Demand, if you work at a company or you start a company, you meet global standards. Don't kid yourself. Crooked politicians or inept politicians are not going to save you with false tariffs or corruption. Pretend your business is in Palo Alto as well as in Africa and you're you're competitive. Improve your competitive business environment every day. Demand, if you're a taxpayer, infrastructure and advancement, refuse to participate. Um, I uh, see my friend Chris Bradford here, and I tell students at African Leadership Academy, you guys all have cell phones. The cell phones have cameras. Take a photograph. Record it when somebody asks you for money. When a government minister down to a policeman, put it on the web, put it on a YouTube, put it on somewhere. I think I'm tired of people accepting an environment of corruption. Let the world know. Embarrass the policeman. Embarrass the government minister. Uh, that guy, um, what was the guy in Kenya? In Tongo? What? In Tonga. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. He did a fabulous job. He exposed all kinds of stuff. He embarrassed all kinds of people. If everybody did that, we, we would stop that. And please be a force for new business. Take advantage of a competitive situation. Use it to create permanent jobs. So that's, that's why I think we all have a role, because once you're out of school, no more policy, no more government, no more all the stuff that you dream about that you can't do. Our job is to do things from the bottom up and make it happen and make a lasting impact. So I hope you'll join me in doing that. My my prepared remarks, and if you have further questions, I can answer them. So. I'm curious, what's your minimum investment? Well, in our company, we typically invest um, 5 to $25 million. It's a pretty broad range, because sometimes it would be a business that might have multiple rounds of investment that could keep on going up. So it depends. And actually, that's going to have to be our last question. It's noon. And the panels are starting now. I have one question. Okay. How much profit do you make What proportion (laughs) that is reinvested in OK, so the profit, there's two there's two measurements. One is the businesses themselves, we finance businesses and they make a lot of profit. They, I think almost all the businesses keep 100% of their money in Africa. So we're, we invest in uh, the companies I told you, that the two I showed you, Sejo and Consolidated, but 100% of their earnings. We are a shareholder and we represent a series of shareholders. Some of them are African, some of them are not African. And I'm not quite sure what they do, like with the IFC or World Bank or the African Development Bank. When we make a profit off our shareholding, we send it back to them, and then that's, that's their choice, what they do with it. But the businesses themselves, which, which uh, we don't take money out of the businesses because we sell our shares in the business to somebody else. The businesses themselves keep all their money in Africa.